Welcome to the podcast, Music for a Warming World. Anna Garnett from the New Economy Network of Australia talks with Simon Kerr about how his family background shaped his understanding of culture, bridging science and the arts. Then he tells the story of how his journey at university led to his PhD in political ecology, what direction he took in applying what he learnt in the real world. Hello, Simon, and thank you so much for joining us for the Nina podcast. Hi, Anna. It's a great honour, I have to say. Um, I'd like to start each podcast episode just by establishing a little bit of context. So can you please share with us your whereabouts? Wurundjeri country in Brunswick in Melbourne, Australia. Southern Hemisphere. Southern Hemisphere, that. People don't know where Australia is. Just if you find New Zealand and go west. You'll stumble across us. You'll stumble across (laughs) Australia. I I say that as a Kiwi. Oh, are you a Kiwi? Hmm. Born and raised in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Although when I was growing up, it was just New Zealand, but commonly known as Aotearoa, New Zealand, because we're a bilingual nation, the Maori and English. It definitely highlights how far we have to go here in Australia with uh, encompassing and including more of our Aboriginal languages when we compare ourselves to New Zealand. Absolutely, that's true. New Zealand has some advantages because there is essentially one language, Māori, there's different dialects, but one language. Uh, the colonisation happened later, so there was a treaty established. There are a number of characteristics about New Zealand that I think uh, make the comparison between the two countries, while interesting, not always comparable. So I'm very conscious of saying you know, Australia has a long way to go rebuilding its relationships with uh, its First Nations. And New Zealand's made much more progress, but there's a lot of structural reasons for that. I think in New Zealand, and probably there's greater will as well. There are a lot of factors, size, different, so many different nations here. Um, Aboriginals and Torres Strait Islanders have been here for, we know, minimum 65,000 years. I believe Maoris were in New Zealand for 800 years before colonisation. So huge historical yeah. difference there as well. That's right. So we're all settlers at different, different time frames. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, just to give us a little bit of context, COVID in mind, I know in Melbourne, things are really opening up. There's still high cases, but they're dropping. How have you been going with everything that's been happening in Melbourne? The first five lockdowns were fine. The sixth and longest was, I think, the hardest. The hardest part of a week's lockdown is the first four weeks So I found this last portion much more difficult than the first lot. We are fortunate here. We're fairly well insulated. I have work that I can do from home. I write and I talk to people. My partner does the same. So we have income coming in. We don't have to go out necessarily. So we're in a very privileged position. Learning to both work from home, do all the things we do, has been interesting, but not at all problematic. It's been good in some ways. We're that fortunate group, that privileged group, could stay fairly immune from all the challenges of COVID. Uh, the other side of the coin, though, is that through all this, I've been doing a lot more reading around uh, the climate crisis. I've been mean, doing this for a number of years. Well, I know we'll talk about this later. So I've been increasingly just troubled by the unfolding future. And so not being able to get out and not being able to do good things like walk in the forest and things like that 
I found it much harder to stay with a degree of uh, equanimity and you know maintain really good well-being. I've been fine overall, but then I wouldn't like to be in a lockdown forever like this. And climate anxiety is real. And so when you're left with less outlets, less activities, less distractions maybe or escapes or also less fulfilling things and you're more stuck in your house, you're also a bit more stuck in your mind. So I guess it could be accentuated. Ah, look, that's undoubtedly true. Your research in political ecology, your music endeavours and how these roles and experiences have led you to be a part of Nina. I'll start with your experience in the voluntary sector. You volunteered for around 10 years living in religious-based international communities in Australia and New Zealand. Can you tell us what you got up to in that time and what your motivation was to do those volunteer roles? Look, the genesis of all that is fairly simple. I grew up in a progressive Catholic home, conservative slash progressive. And in my teenage years, I got quite involved in ecumenical world of Christian action, but all pretty fundamentalist, conservative, traditional. The way I saw the world, the way I was trained to see the world was through a religious perspective, particularly a Christian worldview. And it led me to think, if this particular worldview is true, that Jesus is the truth, there is one God, and we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel, which is the sort of fundamental tenet of Christian Bible. Therefore, one had a duty to do that. So I hooked up with an international youth organization that were doing some pretty radical things, doing street theater and stuff like that. And we worked with them for 10 years, during which time I got married and had children and lived in a relatively impoverished way, sort of a rich way socially quite an exciting time in many ways because we will believe that we would be able to change the world for good. So yeah, some of this was about converting people to a religious viewpoint, finding Jesus. Part of it was though making a better world, particularly in terms of poverty reduction. So there was a whole mixture of things going on. But over the course of those years, I got disillusioned. I started to look beyond that world and realized there was a bigger picture. I started reading philosophy and started thinking in a wider space. And so I went to university uh, in my early 30s. In a sense, I really made a decision to leave that theological view of life behind. It was a very slow transition for me. It wasn't automatic. I did that through an intellectual commitment to always searching for what was true and what was right, whatever that means these days. But nevertheless, that was the conviction. So I had a pretty amazing time in those 10 years, but it was a pretty tough time too. It was a fairly fundamentalist group. There are a lot of things that I entirely disagree with now. There are things that I think are really good as well. So it's a really mixed bag. So when I left that, uh, I left the world that I knew. I was now living in an entirely secular world. I couldn't go back to that old world. I had certainly made it clear that I was no longer seeing things the same way. And then suddenly I found myself in this university secular world that I didn't also fit. So I had to reinvent myself in those early years of studying philosophy and sociology and feminist studies and all those sort of cool things we used to have way back then. A lot of movement for your self-identity 
yeah. and a lot of re-establishing who you are in your personal connections with people and also in your views about the world. I think most of all, we don't so much discover ourselves, we create ourselves. We are both the products of and contributors to the selves that we become. There are limits to what we can do. We can't entirely lose, let go of the societies that we live in, but at the same time, there is a sort of flex of interaction between the social world and the agency we have. But I think the biggest realization I had was third year sociology. For when I read a book, it's called Crafting Selves by a Japanese American scholar. She'd written a PhD in Japan, living in Japan in a traditional role. She has, so she'd gone from the US in Japan. And what I discovered through that is that, and it may be changing now, there was no word for the individual I in Japanese, that every relationship you had was related to a role. I am a daughter, or I am a wife, or I am a worker, or I am a manager, or I am a whatever I am. There's no, this is me independent of the social world. I kind of realized that the way I was in this world could be different. The way I was raised was only one of a range of possibilities. And so that for me was a revolutionary thought. It changed my map of the world. And I've carried that with me, and I carry that with me in my socio-political analysis. Things are the way they are for sets of reasons. They're not immutable. The world can be different. We can be different. So, yes, I've been very conscious that the self that I inhabit is constantly evolving and changing. And I am sometimes comfortable with that and sometimes less comfortable with that because it's often destabilizing. <laughs> but I'm not surprised by the ongoing change. But I bring it into my own thinking about the future and what the future might hold. And when I look at it as I get older too, this concept that everything changes, I'm comfortable and familiar with. It helps me think more clearly, I believe, about what sort of things are happening in our world and how we should and might adapt to them, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I really like that you touched on the very nature of us growing and evolving can bring up a sense of disintegration and integration. We're not stable beings, but the narratives we tell ourselves very much determine how we live our life. Yeah. That's really interesting. I wasn't expecting any of that. That's Thank you for sharing that. You did a Bachelor of Philosophy and Sociology. You also did a, a Master's of Applied Science in Natural Resource Management followed by a PhD in political ecology at Lincoln Uni. Can you tell us a bit about your research in that? What is it that you were studying and, and what were your findings? My master's was interdisciplinary first year, uh, ecological economics and policy, ecology, and the second year was thesis. So it's really like a mini PhD. And I look at a form of deliberative decision-making this is in Christchurch, a particular council at you, to build a new solid and hazardous, this very sexy, a solid and hazardous waste management strategy for the city. But it was fascinating. So what the city council did, they said, we want to get community input. So they built a consultative group with representation from all the key groups you can think of. There's a woman's rep, there's an environmental rep, 
but there's about 12 or 15 people in this consultative group. Experts would talk about the various options, and then this group would discuss what the best outcome would be for wastewater and things like that, which is quite important. And they used a deliberative process. So I was very interested in this concept of deliberative democracy. And they put a recommendation to the city council. It was quite radical. It was an incremental learning process by using ecological systems to manage wastewater rather than just big high-tech pipes like the treat it, pipe it out to the ocean, dump it. That was the high-tech simple solution because everyone's clear about the outcomes. They had another way of using ecological learning by putting in marshlands and various other ecological techniques to progressively purify the water so it goes into the estuary so then it goes out into the ocean through a different system. Much more uncertainty with this and it was the uncertainty that undid the program. The city council got worried that they couldn't demonstrate on a graph and with numbers, the amount it was going to cost, they couldn't demonstrate that to their citizens. So they went with the tried and true, which was the high-tech approach. That was one thing. And I took that idea a bit further on in my PhD. And I was looking at this concept of ecological reason. What makes a public policy decision an ecologically rational decision. But there is two main types of decision-making I've discovered. One was uh, there's a technocratic approach. So use good science, good technology to make decisions about the big policy things around resource management. The second was using community deliberation, you know, local democracy and community values to help drive what sorts of decisions we want, what sort of outcomes do we want. So you have those two. And they were in deep tension with each other because there's no way easily to resolve a technical analysis with a set of community values, particularly their indigenous values. They are worldviews that were maybe incommensurable in some ways. But what was more interesting was in the literature, there was this third dimension, which was the needs, rights, and interests of the more than human world. And that really was left entirely untouched by the current decision-making processes. The interests of rivers or other species or multi-species communities, there was no mechanism to build their interests into the decisions, even though people have been talking about them. So that's really what I was looking at. So I have a strong interest in the issue about the human world since that time. And in recent years, particularly since we're doing the music and thinking a lot about the future, I've come to really appreciate much more deeply that our future, our human future, is deeply entangled in the future of the non-human world, and that we have to rethink this relationship with each other. Like I even read in The Guardian, there was a, a series on saving the climate, and I'm thinking this whole language is just wrong or misplaced. We don't save the climate. The earth doesn't need saved. We're the ones that are going to need saved. The earth is going to continue. The climate patterns will continue. They'll change. This is about our future. And with our future, the future of millions and millions of other species. So because we have somehow got detached from this planet we live on, and we live up here in this conceptual world, thinking we can continue to float along 
regardless of what happens to the planet. Conceptually and empirically, that's just misplaced because everything we do, as you know, I'm sure you well appreciate, is entangled in the carbon cycle, the oxygen cycle, and all the other cycles that give us life and the lives of other creatures with which we've co-evolved. And we have forgotten that. So the big revolution, in my view, and the big narrative transformation is how do we regain that sense of entanglement in the more than human world that then begins to transform our economic system so that our economics is one of caring and regeneration of these systems and these other non-human multi-species communities within which we live. If we don't get that right, there is no future for us. Ultimately, the planet will keep going, but we will collapse. That's what will happen, in my mind. A little cheery thought for you there. But it's reality, you know. There is more and more and more coming out about the interconnectedness of the natural world from David Attenborough with his new book, Living Planet, to great books like Braiding Sweetgrass or The Overstories. There's a lot coming out, fungi, which is important and funny that it's taken till now for this understanding to become more mainstream because a lot of biologists and philosophers and people in different fields brought this to light, were shut down because the overarching paradigm of us being the dominant up the top of not a circle of life, but very much a pyramid has has taken over. Uh, Basically our arrogance hasn't allowed us to really see it for what it is. I guess you've had such fundamental shifts in your views from your upbringing to now. I think the thread that I've seen, this overarching compassion for the world that we live in, for other humans, for other beings, wanting for all of us to come together and, and help each other. Yeah. Um, I think that underlying mm-hmm. story of compassion is an important one. I mean, I'm not Pollyannish about the ability of human communities to all come together in the Pollyannish sense, but our future does depend on our social cooperation. And this is where I think one of the big narrative changes is stories you've been talking about, mycorrhizal world or the mycelium, that the forest is not a set of individual trees, but it is a symbiotic community in which the boundaries between one entity and the other are blurred. So I like to think the better model is an analog model rather than a digital model of the world, because where does one boundary end and another begin? In the digital space, it's pretty clear, a series of series of ones, and and you a very clear delineation between one state and another state. But in an analog system, you have this almost infinite variety of states. So individuals are much more interlocked and relied upon other individuals uh, for even identity. So one of the big thoughts that I came across recently was there is no human being without the other beings that are part of this being. So you know, how we think of ourselves as seeing individuals, which is an important psychological function. We, we're not suggesting we don't have that. Otherwise, we lose a sense of you know who we are. But the truth is, we have these extraordinary symbiotic relationships with our gut biota, for example, 
that generate our ability to sustain emotional life and intellectual life, hormonal life, that we are in fact a collection of beings. So Simon, while it might seem like an individual being doing his own thing, is actually a multi-species community. And when you spread that out with the connection with the other beings who produce the oxygen, who soak up, soak up the carbon dioxide that I breathe out, who provide the cycle of nutrients, I recycle them myself, you know, wherever they go <laughs> into our system. It starts to dissolve the sense of radical individualism. And that radical individualism, to me, is a dangerous thing. Because we've built a political system and an economic system of a fundamentally flawed idea. It doesn't mean we give up the idea that I have a name and you have a name. For a temporary period of time, you're an assemblage of molecules or whatever. And I'm identified as Simon for a period of time. But ultimately, we all go back into the great flux and we'll be recycled at some point. So this concept of what it is to be an individual is a really important issue around rebuilding community because cooperation and recognizing at a deeper level that we are connected, even if we deny that connection, that is super important to rebuilding the sort of sustainable, I don't like the word sustainable these days, but a set of possible futures, if that makes sense. In essence, it's this concept of our individual being a sole functioning self-reliant system is arguably false because where it begins, where it ends, I don't know, but we're actually so intertwined with from the air that we breathe in and out to the food that we eat, defecate to the very nature of the physical world as well, the very nature of me being in this house, wearing this jumper, sitting at this table with this computer, everything has come from the living world. Every, every physical item, let alone the very nature of how I operate in the world is thanks to the roads that have been made, the friendships that I have, the the people who teach us things. Like there's no beginning and end with ourself. It's constant input and output of everything around us, I suppose. You mentioned that you don't like using the word sustainable. Why is that? I think it's a word that is unsuited to the type of future that we have brought into being. We live in a discontinuity. Now, through this massive alteration of the climate system, the massive impact on the ecosystems of the world, the destruction of the ecosystems of the world, but particularly the impacts of the climate system literally changes everything. It changes the future. It compresses the sort of risks that we face. We face much greater uncertainty now because the world that we've known, the old world, we had an understanding of how it worked. Our expertise, tools that we build, the way we think about it, were all designed for a world that was fairly predictable. And for a long time, it worked pretty well. We knew how to manage it. What I think we don't understand fully is that that world is now gone. There is a new world coming that has a multi-level series of risks that we cannot necessarily anticipate, that the tools we have for managing it are inadequate or not up for task. The level of risk is escalating beyond our control. And you just see this if you look at what's happening in the insurance industry. 
insurance is predicated on the degree of you know, probabilities for events occurring. And we're going to see an escalating number of events which will defy the normal ability to, for prediction. And that's going to be compressed in time and space. And that brings all sorts of social and economic pressures in this changing world. I've been meditating a lot on Naomi Klein's idea of this changes everything. I read the book years ago, wrote a song about it well, but I think I'm starting to really internalize it much more deeply. The world that we have prepared for and the tools that we have will no longer cope with the world that we've created and that's coming. And that's why I say the concept of sustainability, we've had that around for 40 years and, and every indicator has is deteriorating. Therefore, holding on to that as a conceptual ideal in a world in which time's compressed, risk is growing, there are a lot of nonlinear changes that we won't be able to anticipate. Sustainability is not a notion that will help us into this future. I think it locks us into a way of thinking a sort of false empowerment that, oh, all we've got to do is be sustainable and we know how to do it. And my sense is we actually don't know how to live into this new climate future. That is our task now. That's our number one goal is to walk into a future that is more risky, less predictable, and we're going to have to work it out as we go. And if we rely on our current set of tools and expertise, we will fail to cope with it. I sound like a bleak view, but I'm increasingly convinced that we have to have deep and radical rethinking about our future. So for me, I'm trying to ditch the language of sustainability and find new ways of thinking about this. The bigger complexities versus a simplified term that doesn't necessarily match with what's required of us. I think also it locks us into a way of thinking we've not been able to achieve anyway. Everything you've just said can segue nicely into our economy and what's wrong with our economy and why we need a new economy and where Nina comes in. What do you see as the value of Nina? Nina is a space where some of these new thoughts and new ideals and some of this deep thinking can find a home and find airspace. It's not the only place, but it's a extraordinary location of people who are trying to think outside the box. A lot of it's localized, so there's a lot of a regional and local focus. I also am interested in the global focus because I think we need to be addressing all layers. But for Nina's particular role, it is focused on what does a new economy look like? How do we get out of this extractive cycle we're on? And it's a chance to experiment and a chance to share so my principal reason for joining Nina was I'm interested in narrative. And the reason I put my hand up to join the board is I had the time. Partly I was impressed with what Michelle and others were doing, and I just wanted to contribute because I don't run a business. And I have been on boards before, so I thought I've got some experience in governance, and I probably contribute to that and help this good ship Nina sail on a bit more smoothly. So that was my principal interest, really. I'd love to know a little bit more about what happens behind the scenes in your committee board meetings. Can you share a little bit about what is happening in the Nina space, what you're hoping to see unfold within Nina in the near future? 
Well, the well-being economy stuff has just been launched on Monday. So there's a Australian half of the well-being economy. So for the listeners who are not familiar with that, the simplified version is measuring social well-being, not just through gross domestic product, which is what most economies do, but is taking a whole range of other indicators. What is an economy that works for people and, hasten to add, works for the non-human world as well, that can create well-being in all of those communities? What does it look like? There are a number of countries that are seriously looking at changing the way that they record their gross domestic product or the range of indicators they use to track their progress. And so Nina has set up and joined with a number of other hubs around the world, set up this Australian hub. And there's been a lot of work done now to start to socialise these ideas with economists and local and state governments and I'm assuming federal government as well and get these ideas circulating. So yeah, that's one thing I think I'm really excited about. If you shift the language, you shift the story, you shift the game. So for me, again, it's about facilitating ways for really positive emergent narratives to grow and have influence. So then within Nina, looking at how we can measure well-being, including the non-human world, what do you see as possibilities within Australia? Because I know you said there are countries around the world not just looking at the GDP, but seriously looking at other measurements. What can you see as possibilities, realistic possibilities within Australia, or is it all political and they're pretty hopeless at this point in time? Look, I think we shouldn't get too despairful about politics, as terrible as it is. I don't get despairful because I've sort of given up hope. (laughs) You know, that Buddhist idea of letting go of my expectations. But there's a deeper sense for this because the resistance that I see at the moment in the current federal system is particularly, say, towards renewable energy or to the climate policy or any of these other progressive policies. A lot of these moments of resistance, the government's got its back against the wall when you look at what's happening around the world. And the thing that makes me feel different about the Glasgow COP as opposed to, say, Paris, is that the external conditions in the world have changed dramatically. Now, I'm not expecting a lot actually out of of Glasgow. I would like to. But the other side of the coin is that you have the oil industry being hauled before the Senate in the US to give account of their disinformation. And the knowledge they've had about global warming for decades and why they have gone on a disinformation campaign, they have to give an account of this, that all the big investment companies around the world are pulling out of fossil fuels. The International Energy Agency has said, don't build any more fossil fuels. It's just not on the horizon. That's not where the future lies. So you have these big structural shifts, which our government and the National Party in particular is just resisting in a really, really self-destructive way. Because even the farming community, by and large, are desperate for change, desperate for a set of policies that will support them into a drier, more harsher climate future. The system will be overrun by external events. Who would ever thought the government could swing around and provide all this financial support for people, double the income support for people without jobs. No one expected that. We're going to have more and more of those types of conditions that are going to change the game. That's why I say the future is unpredictable. The current tools we have will be inadequate for thinking about it. So in some ways, I'm sort of sitting back feeling their views are unsustainable. 
they will collapse the current government's views. The trouble is, could take a little while. And our goal, our role, is to speed up that collapse of those ideas because there's a whole set of people who will benefit dramatically and benefit much more. Even the coal miners themselves will benefit much more if we take rapid action on global warming and we take rapid action on economic transformation. How do you think that coal miners would benefit from us taking climate action? Oh, the costs of managing climate change into the future vastly outweigh any cost of transformation now. We can prop up the coal industry short term. It's going to collapse anyway. It's going to collapse in two ways. One is by the world's going to put a price on carbon. The industries as renewable energies come more and more online, including storage. No one's going to buy the coal. So it's going to be stranded assets. So these communities are going to be stranded. But that's a short-term thing. These communities need long-term uh, alteration. Plus, climate's going to get much harsher. I work on some research on the Murray-Darling Basin. And as I look at this, it's a really dire future. Some areas are be tougher than others. But for a lot of the basin, those communities are going to really struggle. And a number of those communities will probably collapse in the next uh, decade or two. As we've just got a really wet season, but we're going to get another very, very dry season. And as climate change continues to bite, or the climate crisis hits us, the temperatures get hotter. These events are going to last longer and longer. The heat's going to get hotter and hotter. It's going to become less water. All of this is well known. The world is not like it was. I'm really conscious that we don't live in the same world as we grew up in, certainly for me. We don't live in the same world as all the tools and training and stuff that I was given. And I still see it at my university operating. All those ways of thinking are designed for a world that now no longer exists. And yet we haven't quite been able to make that transition in our thinking. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. I'm struggling with it. So I get it. So we could prop up coal miners for a short while. But ultimately, they will be in a worse off position. And also, we're just passing the costs on to those who can least afford to pay. And that's the other thing. More people will benefit from rapid, fast action now than by delaying change. We can't do this progressively and incrementally and slowly. We've got to do it rapidly. So then why is it that, let's say with COP26, you said... Because I agree with you with this sense of urgency and seeing what the Morrison government's plan is that they've put forward. They haven't even addressed 2030 and their net zero plan target for 2050 is without any form of legislation. So I'm wondering, on one hand, you want this government to collapse sooner rather than later, and it will because what they're proposing isn't sufficient Yet on the other hand, we need urgency. So what are your views on the climate plan that he's brought to Glasgow? Oh, he hasn't got a climate plan. He's got a re-election plan. He thinks he's got a re-election plan, but he hasn't got a climate plan. He's a spin doctor and he is exercising virtually no leadership at all. He is dangerous. Now, I know that it's a tough position to be in, 
So I'm not unsympathetic to the fact that he's got a bunch of recalcitrants in the National Party who are his coalition partner, and he's got to maintain the numbers and confidence as party leader, and he's got to maintain confidence with voters. All he's trying to do is stay in power and juggle things around so they maintain the number of seats that they've got or increase them. But there is no vision. He doesn't understand the desperate cases of climate change and the fact that anything we do now is far, far cheaper than having to remediate or all we're doing is passing the extraordinary costs on to not just future generations, so that's too far ahead, but the, the next decade, the next two decades, where people will have a far more disruptive world, think catastrophic bushfires, catastrophic flooding events, and heat waves that are going to progressively get worse and worse and endanger many more people, and probably pandemics. We're going to see those sort of things. Now, it's not that we can't cope with all those. I think we have got the capacity and the financial ability to manage these, but not without vision and not without really working hard to reimagine what this future is going to be like. Under the old scheme, under the old business as usual, slow and steadily, we will lose our opportunities. So I'm extremely disappointed with Morrison. I think the, the faster that government can be thrown out of power, the better. Labour, I'm, I understand their reluctance from the last election to, to take a much more rigorous climate policy out, but I think they have to have courage because every year the world changes. This is not a static game. The electorate is getting well, more and more younger people getting to vote. So this is not a static game. So I just wish we had someone who saw it like Biden. Thank God, what a beacon of hope. Even though he's going to struggle to get his legislation through, and it will be it was probably inadequate as it was, and will certainly be far less than he wanted it to be. But if there was still that other fella whose name I won't mention in, the, in power, you know, I would feel deeply worried. But another story behind that, I run a project called Music for a Warming World, and it's a multimedia live music concert for about five or six years around the country. Music festivals and universities and community halls and all sorts of places. I wrote it because I wanted to tell the climate story, and I wanted to engender a bit of emotional engagement. So it was not just an abstract thing where oh, all these things are going to happen in 100 years' time. And I don't care about 100 years' time. I'm not going to be alive in 100 years' time. So it's very hard to feel emotionally engaged about sea level rise at a metre in 100 years' time, although it's going to be much more than a metre in 100 years' time. In fact, it's going to be probably about a metre in, in 30 years' time, which is another catastrophic impact we haven't even talked about, really, is the impact of sea level rise and the incursion of the oceans into many of our major cities, and the economic costs, cultural costs, the dislocation, the disruption of people's lives, the disruption of cultural capital, destruction of history, we're not prepared for. We can't imagine a world in which the expectations for the future, the expectations for our summer holiday, we played a Woodford Folk Festival three years ago. Have you been there at all? 
Wonderful. One of the best music festivals in the country. It's a very big festival and it's very diverse. I'm going to say folk mm. plus, but all sorts of crazy stuff going on. It's really hot. And I had a chat to the organisers about their climate plans because they're really aware of this. And I think it's quite likely within 10 years, there would be huge risk for them to put on the festival over summer. It's always been in summer. They may have to shift it to some other part of the year. These are the sort of things that are going to be happening. And they're going to be really big changes for all of us because it alters all our expectations about life. So I wrote the show to help people engage emotionally, not just intellectually, with the climate challenge. So initially, a show was very simple. Here's the science. Here's what we can do. And here's how to have hope. Pretty straightforward message. In the last year or two, I've really shifted my thinking. I don't talk about the science anymore. We used to have a brilliant song about uh, divestment. I don't bother, you know, divesting from fossil fuels. Then go to your bank and say, hey, bank manager, are you investing in fossil fuels? And I had a lot of people respond positively to that and go and knock on the door of the bank manager. We don't do that anymore because the big institutions have already taken that up. So the story's changing really fast. I'm very conscious now we have moved past the moment where we can solve climate change or we can keep temperatures under 1.5. We won't keep it under 2 degrees. I see no mechanism for doing that. I see no trajectory where that's a likely possibility. We could do it technically, but in this real world with real people, with real economics, with real political systems, not a chance. So Mm. I've now shifted my thinking to how are we going to live into this deeply changed future? And so it's a shift of focus. We're going to have to live with a disruptive world, and we're going to have to have many conversations about the new earth which we've created, the new earth that will not be so amenable to us, and we're going to have to reinvent what it means to be a human being on this place, our relationship with the more than human world, we've talked about that before, the types of economic systems and the way we produce the stuff we need, how much we should be producing, how do we make sure it's shared fairly? All those things are going to be enormously disruptive and challenging. And yet, that's the conversations we need to have. So this show now is much more about helping people to have a conversation about this new world. It's going to be really challenging. But we've got to start talking more realistically about the reality of this future we're moving into. So how do you, with Music for a Warming World, you said you've been to festivals like Woodford, no less, a number of different performances. How do you now bring out that message of having these conversations? How do you provoke conversations in your audience? We invite people into a community space where we can use music and visuals to take them on a journey. The journey is through acknowledging this reality We've had this magnificent fling on the planet. The party really is over. That type of party is over. And it's that chance to reflect about that and the grief and loss that that brings. Then we talk about what I'm calling courage and compassion as stabilizers for the way we go forward. Some people talk about radical hope, intrinsic hope, as opposed to Pollyannish hope. 
it's not automatic that we're going to find a solution or not automatic that we're going to come out of this. But whatever the album's title suggests, there is only one way to head. We've got to work with courage for a future that we can't yet see clearly. Then the last part of the show, we move into regeneration. And that's an evolving feast at the moment. We talk about a, a relationship with the more than human world. We talk about fun country song about eating more vegetables and fewer animals, agricultural change, eating patterns, the renewable energy revolution. We have a fun song about that as well. Super Power Aussie, <laughs> one or two other pieces of music as well. So it's designed really to give you a space of different types of narrative, different types of ways of thinking about this. It's not a downer because you can't take people into a down space and leave it there. The thing is, by coming together with shared music, and we do get them to sing along as well, it creates this sense of solidarity, being not alone. And that is so powerful. It changes their brain chemistry and gives us a sense of, even though the message is a tough one, we're not alone. And that we still have an opportunity to build a future that's worth living for. But it will look very different than the one we've known. It's very uncertain about how it's going to evolve. We have to find ways to support each other as we go through these very messy times in the future. And I love that it brings into what you were saying before, your passion for shifting language to shift the game. This is a really powerful means to do that through music. Currently, very mainstream brings about messages that are more hedonistic, selfish and about love and breakups and all these things. But artists like the Beatles or the Peter Garretts of the world who really open our eyes to issues through music and that becomes a powerful thing that we're singing about. We can revisit these songs and not just enjoy them in the moment, but consciously and subconsciously shape that narrative, shape that view when we're given messages that are meaningful, enjoyable through song. Because from the beginning of time, we've been storytellers. It's really nice to hear that you're using the platform of, of music. It's huge fun as well, and it's one of the ways that we all stay sane because we get to play it together. Even in our practices, it's like, this is so cool. We try to yeah. write good music. But being in that environment where we've given ourselves an hour or so of community space, the lights are down, big screens up, everyone can just immerse themselves in this journey, is a very different experience than just hearing a single song on the radio, for example. But again, we're doing it together. We want to incorporate more conversation in the show as well. We're starting to experiment with the show. We, we actually engage more with people and get reflections and ideas and thoughts. Because I think one of the things that must happen, we've got to normalize talking about this climate predicament. I don't use the word climate change very often because I think it's far too passive. We're in a predicament. All emergency is probably a better term. We are now in a long emergency, and it's going to be probably for some hundreds of years that we've, we've kicked off. We have to become comfortable talking about it, not have the conversation shut down as soon as you go, climate, oh, oops, too late, people have turned off, too hard, don't want to think about it, because it will come <laughs> for us. So better prepared we are, the more comfortable we are with talking about this, the more we know where our resources are, the more we prepare our community. Even simple things like, 
is everyone safe during a heat wave? How do we make sure that people without air conditioning, that there are safe spaces to go? A lot of people die. More people die through heat than die through bushfires. So these are the sorts of challenges and the overwhelming of our health system. We haven't been, certainly in my life as a 31-year-old, it hasn't been part of my normal conversations that I have with people. So whilst myself and a lot of friends wouldn't necessarily shut down and hide away from the conversation, I think there'd be a lot of people that are open to it, but don't really have the skills or the know-how to even start a conversation about it and how to have a productive conversation, but a real conversation where we feel like there's momentum and movement with it, not just reiterating the same reviews that we hear in the news or this, that, and the other, another study that's come through and feels a little bit like, yep, that's the reality. There's a long way to go with developing climate literacy, but also having conversations about it that feel productive and fulfill this purpose that you're talking about of bringing people together, bringing us closer, checking in with each other, seeing how we're feeling, seeing how we're going, seeing how we'd go in certain crises. That's a really important part of the conversation that is just starting to unfold, I think, or in my case, hasn't unfolded at all yet. That's a really important point. We have to learn how to do this because we don't really have parts of this new future, this new earth we're living in. We don't have analogs from the past that are going to be up to task. What do we do? How do we deal with this? What do we say? That's part of the job now of figuring that out. That's why this is such a transformative moment and transformative opportunity. And for young people today who are facing this sense of future and going, my God, is there a future? I would flip that around and say, there's never been a more important time to get engaged because everything we do now towards making a safer future will make the future safer. Anything we hold back on or don't do will allow a less safe future to emerge. Now, we don't have complete control over what's coming. There'll be things out of our control, but it's certainly true to say, and that's why I wrote about only one way to head. We could put our heads in the sand. We could ignore it. We could just deflect and deny and all those other things, which are psychological responses, sometimes rational psychological responses. But ultimately, I don't think we've got any other choice but to engage with courage uh, for this future. And how would you recommend people engage? Multiple ways, but I don't think we can do it alone. So I started at the Musicians Climate Crisis Network two years ago in Melbourne because I felt alone, particularly as a musician. How does music play into this? And what's my responsibility as an artist? I felt alone in that. So I started a group. But we've got to connect with other people who can talk about it part of the climate network at my university. We have lots of conversations about this sort of stuff as well. Join a group, find a group, start one. There are lots of options. Second thing is just learn about this. We've got to immerse ourselves in some of this, but not just the science, as you're saying, but there's a lot of literature now around the climate as culture and thinking about climate as a cultural problem. When I talk about climate, I'm really talking about a cultural problem rather than just a issue of physics and chemistry, which it obviously is. So there's some really good blogs. 
great websites around that dealing with grief and all these sorts of things as well. There's some great organizations that are talking about conversations. Based in Melbourne, actually, it's spread around the country now called Climate Conversations. They're doing a great job of cultivating kitchen-side conversations. People actually go and meet up and have a facilitator-led conversation. They are the two major things that would really help. And then you can figure out what sort of skills you've got. We've all got some capacity. I do recognize, too, that you know some people are just surviving. A lot of people like stuff. So I'm not saying that everyone has to become an uh, expert in this sort of stuff. And they, they certainly can't ignore it, there's no doubt. But I recognize for some people, just getting by every day is what they can do. But there are a lot of us who have got the education, the skills, the capital resources. And our responsibility, whether we're an artist or we're a public servant or whatever, our role is to pull the levers we've got. These days, I do the climate test when I think about what I should be doing with my life. Will this thing help me make a safer world? And that's a challenging test too, because it does question things like, you know, just luxurious overseas holidays just for their own sake. Should that be part of the game? Just because I might be able to afford it, for example, does it mean I should be doing it? Um, They're tricky questions. They're very good questions and some might seem more obvious than others because where's the line of how much we don't enjoy certain things in life or if we've got family overseas, they're very tricky personal questions. If you could recommend one resource, book, report, article, documentary, etc., that's valuable and kind of reflects one or multiple principles behind Nina and what Nina's all about. One is called Searching for the Mother Tree by Suzanne Simard. She was the forest ecologist that was doing the scientific work to discover the mycelium, the underworld fungi, and the interconnections and the way the mycorrhizal systems work, the way trees communicate between each other. So Susan Simard, and the reason I mentioned that is that I think it's not only a fabulous read, uh, autobiographical as well as unpacking the science, it provides a groundwork for a new way of thinking that would really resonate with people from Nina. People who are already doing this stuff, who already understand it, but it's a really foundational book. It's just quite a recent book. The other book, it might sound a wee bit far from Nina, is the latest book from the science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson called Ministry for the Future. It's probably the best example of literature or fiction that looks at the way our future could uh, unfold. A really powerful and interesting, messy world of the future where there's tremendous problems, but there's also sparks of opportunity and start to see some degree of progress. But it's not a nice linear story from here we are now, we do X, Y, and Z, and we end up with this really great future. It's much more entangled and messy. But by the end of the book, you're starting to think, maybe, just maybe, we might be able to scrape through all this, reinvent ourselves with technology, with cultural change, with radical economic change. And we might be able to find a world that is not quite so damaging to the rest of us and the rest of the living world. I love it. Yes, guest Bronwyn Morgan, co-founder of Nina, alongside mm. Michelle, also recommended that book. Who is one person that has been an immense personal and potentially professional inspiration for you? One person I haven't met, or well, Bill McKibben clearly has always 
I've always found him inspirational, if not rather sobering in recent years. He's got more sober. Uh, I don't mean that he's drink a lot, but I mean, <laughs> interesting watching his writings now. So he's been very influential in my thinking. Another guy recently I've been listening to a lot of, and some of the stuff we've been saying today has been pretty much formed by the views of Alex Stephan, who's a futurist, but is a very wide-scale thinker about systems and about the nature of the future that we're going into. I find him very deeply inspiring, deeply engaging, and his ideas I find really, really profound. So I think he, he gets to that core of this, the nature of the issues that we're facing and the type of world that we are in now. So mm-hmm. he's someone I would certainly recommend. Here's a podcast called The Snap Forward. Oh, thank you. Uh, look, this, this heat's influenced my thinking over the years, but that's something that comes to mind. And you did mention as well, Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything, which I would also advocate. I've actually only read segments of her book but I have watched a documentary and I've seen her live in Sydney and she's, she's outstanding uh, at yeah, yeah. highlighting how capitalism really doesn't coincide with, uh, I won't use the word sustainability, but keeping our planet in check from climate disasters. Yeah, They're mutually exclusive. Capitalism can't coexist with sustaining. That seems to be the case. I mean, it's a really interesting a lot of debate around forms of capitalism and what, what economic forms. And I'm very cautious to go into that space, but I, I'm very critical of current types of capitalism because we can easily get into a binary view of saying, well, if we don't have capitalism, we have socialism. I, we have communism. We have real profound social control and central management and stuff. I'm still a fan of markets for lots of things, a fan of personal freedom, but mm-hmm. I also think that the world is a complicated place. The way that capitalism has been untethered from regulatory control and the way that the world has been financialized, particularly you know, capital markets have been financialized and you know, water rights have been financialized and the whole bunch of stuff that's been happening, we've given access to financial markets to a whole range of natural resources, unconnected from production, they're just out there to make a buck, enormously destructive. It's a very complex issue, but we've got to restrain the way that investment and private capital flows around the world. We've got to change the rules of the game. And there's a lot of work to be done on that. I think it's sort of the big challenges. The big fight is over those two whole capital. That's why I'm not optimistic around the power that large-scale capital still exerts. Much of it is going into really good things now, renewable energy and other positive things. But nevertheless, when you have concentrated interests that don't reflect the views or the interests of the majority of the community, you're going to have a power struggle. And that's where I think your future lies. We're going to have ultimately a few wealthy countries and wealthy elites who will Mm. insulate themselves as much as possible from the changes that are happening and will also make money out of catastrophe or we're going to have to have a much more redistributive system that will actually support everybody to play their part in the future. And this is what I like about Ina in that when looking at a well-being economy, it's very much looking at the well-being of people, which looks at the very nature of economic disparity and who's being unfairly treated Absolutely. at the cost of who else. Absolutely. Yeah. On a personal level, how do you reconcile on a, the very nature of contributing to big market corporations just by living and existing in this world 
understanding the damage caused by those very institutions? Look, that's an excellent question. I think if we don't feel some angst over that, we're not really grappling with it properly. It is a difficult thing, and there is no single answer. In fact, there's no answer finally solves the riddle of how to do this. We'll probably always have to be grappling with this. Every person and every community will have to figure out how to do that. But we also have to have some self-compassion and also realize that we live in a world in which some things are possible and some things are not. I've got my MacBook Pro in front of me and I've got my my iPhone. I'm not going to get rid of those. It is an old one, I admit, but they're not going to have to change it sometime because the apps are not going to keep up with this one. So it's a tough, tough business. So personally, I try to live small and smart. That's why we live in an apartment. Our footprint's a lot lower than it would be. We've got electric bikes now. Yay! So most of our transport in the city is on our bikes, unless we use trams. But we are in the middle of public transport nirvana here. If we're out in the suburbs, it's quite a different story. So I'm very conscious of context. We've had the opportunity to live where we do, partly because it's close to work. And so we make choices around those opportunities. I would love to have an electric car, but can't afford one. They're not available at the moment. It'll come the next two or three years. We could actually see massive numbers of them soon. That's the government's reluctance to support that is not helping. It's a conundrum. Every day I struggle with this. And I, but I think that's the point. If we're not struggling with it, we're not really thinking about it. But we more so have to be compassionate with ourselves. And there are limits to what you can do, you know? And personal guilt is not really helpful. Sometimes you've just got to let go and say, well, this is how it is at the moment. I'm going to have to fly to New Zealand. My children live in New Zealand. My daughter's about to have another baby. So we're in a whole bunch of fossil fuels, which is probably more than my global share to get there and back. We live in Australia. My partner's an academic also, and so every so often we need to fly long distances. And that's one of the unique things about Australia. If you're living in Europe, the UK, you probably don't have to do much flying. You can find alternatives, or even in some parts of the US. But here, we have to accept the fact that we have to do it. But then again, my thinking is, let's do it less frequently and stay for longer. So we don't get into the hyperability thing. Just because we can, we do it. We go, stop, think, is it an alternative? Do I have to do it now? And then if I am going to do it, then I offset this. Not that I trust offsets, but you know, it's better than nothing. And then when I go and do it, I celebrate the fact that I'm privileged and I've got the opportunity. I try to have a broad, healthy view of it. When it comes to many, many opportunities that involve air flight, they're not simple things to turn down for professional and very personal reasons. Absolutely. That's right. And I think we also have to be very careful about flight shaming. Yeah. We have to be very mindful of not judging others because it builds a culture of distrust. We don't know the circumstances of others. I see a lot of people who are very aggressively opposed to any form of air travel. And when I talk to them, their entire family's here in Melbourne. They've got no reason to travel. They might even be sort of semi-retired or whatever, and they don't need to go anywhere anymore. No personal reasons to travel. 
or maybe they can't afford to travel as well. So there's a whole lot of contextual things around that. But I have a personal commitment not to judging people for their flights. I have to work on that every day because it's very tempting. <laughs> oh, you're going to Los Angeles again to see Disneyland for the third time in three years. Well, let's have a conversation about emissions. Yeah. <laughs> it's a tough one. It is a tough one. Maybe the point isn't about judging individual we all in some ways could be walking, talking contradictions where we make some decisions that we justify, even though they're not great. And we also make other decisions that we feel quite strongly about because they really align with our values of what's better. So we're all in this together. We're all making these arguably better and worse decisions. I think of it more as the action versus the individual, because us as individuals, we're just part of this system doing our best and maybe sometimes we're either not given enough information or education or we haven't had these climate conversations that we're talking about again because it's not a mainstream conversation to have yet. So I agree with you that it's important to not judge and to really see that person being part of a world that they almost have little free will over their decisions because everything that's happened in their life has led them to do that versus us really being informed about every aspect and being able to make really intelligent decisions about every aspect because none of us are. We're just part of this system doing our best. It's a really difficult situation with children. A lot of friends are having babies. I'm at that baby-making age and it's such an amazing thing to celebrate and it's also one of the worst things we can do is add more humans to the world. So, yeah, I, of course, want to celebrate that and would never judge and I want my own children, but I'm aware that it's not at no cost. Yeah, and and it's not fair that you and and your situation have to bear that cost alone or bear that burden alone because it is part of a social contract, part of a community. It's not just an individual choice. Children belong to a community. But to privatise the cost in terms of the dilemma is, I think, something we have to find a way out of. Because that's part of the predicament you're talking about. We're in a system that has given us a set of options. And having children has always been part of what it is to be a human being. The desire to procreate and love and care for and nurture next generation. It's also true that there are a very large number of people on the planet at the moment, and there is no easy solution. I hear the angst and the dilemma of that question, and I'm thinking, it's not fair that I never had to ask that question when I had my kids. Now we're saying to your generation, hey, you should think about this. Well, yes, but to say it's just your personal problem is, is unfair. And I don't know what the solution is necessarily, but recognizing that it's it's a communal problem, not just rest on the individual, because we're so good at privatizing the costs of, of the problems of climate change, ecological deterioration, extraction. You know, it's the individual fault that they don't recycle enough, they're making bad choices, all that sort of stuff, where we actually live in a community system. Yeah, that's a tough one. 
my daughter now has twins about five years ago, and she's got one more coming. And I have to say, I was surprised when she was here and a partner said, oh, we're going to have another child. I go, what? After all the discussions we've had. <laughs> but the thing is that this child has to be loved and embraced and celebrated. So both of those things are true. So we live yeah. with multiple things that there are no easy solutions. And that's why I don't like dichotomous thinking, mm-hmm. either this or either that. We live in this messy mm-hmm. world. So the only ethical thing to do is if we're going to have a child, we embrace that and we celebrate that. And we do everything in our power to make the future safer world for that child. I know a lot of people who are driven, I know a lot of people with grandkids who are driven, that's why they got into the climate movement. Yeah. Because they're going, good grief, we've got to really work hard. And that's what makes a difference. Otherwise, you die out and that's it. <laughs> and it is a beautiful yeah. thing to yeah. have children, there's no doubt. And then again, some people find other ways of crafting a really meaningful communal future probably easier not having children but there are emotional costs there are all sorts of other costs as well so i guess that's representative of the sort of future we're moving into we've grown up to expect that science will give us a great clarity and economics will give us a great clarity about the future that great clarity is breaking down and we live in a much less certain future but live we must and live we shall and find the joy under every fallen leaf, behind every tree. The mountains are still going to be there. Uh, hopefully the birds will still be flying in a few decades. And, and hopefully we've grown a whole bunch more trees and forests to walk in and sit in and be present too. <laughs> My two, two final really quick questions. You can ask them super fast if, if you can. If you could give one piece of advice to Australia's leading politicians, what would it be? It would be that leadership is now the most important thing for our future. And by leadership, I mean supporting the community into this troubled future, having the courage to risk re-election, but having the vision of what we could be and what needs to change. Every time we delay, the benefits of delaying deep and radical and fast change are always more costly than rapid and fast change now. If all of a sudden you miraculously had infinite time, money and resources to spend specifically on Nina right now, what would you do? I would... (laughs) I would probably uh, give Michelle a salary <laughs> for a start. She deserves that. She deserves that. That's right. Oh, look, I think probably what Nina needs is actually a secretariat and the paid resources. Nina doesn't need a big building or anything like that. What Nina needs is capacity, and capacity means human hours. There's a lot of hubs. There's a lot of work that's going on outside Nina, but Nina's role in coordinating that simply can't be done with the resources we've got. So setting up some sort of professional secretariat that would support the rapid development, promotion of Nina's activities, 
But particularly important, I think, would be thinking through ways to really develop the well-being economy principles and policy frameworks that could work for Australia and then to socialise those, which means different levels, government levels, local government, obviously, the business community throughout the universities, because universities are still pretty caught up in their old ways of thinking, and the general community. thing about the wellbeing community is everyone benefits. Then it will be the resources to counter those who are destined to lose the most, because they have the resources to fight. And that's what's been happening with tobacco, fossil fuels, gas, Santos, apparently, is their name is across the COP26 Australian desk as a sponsor. No. Well, their bright new future is, uh, is uh, using, using gas. That's technology. Gas is a transition. That's the narrative. Mm. So certainly that's one of the things that Nina could play a big role in if it had the resources. And what are you looking forward to with the Nina conference this week? I'm really impressed. One called Rearranging Human Settlement Patterns for the More Than Human Cities. So it's that whole, again, engagement with the more than human world. Uh, Then I'm chairing one on smart urban governance for more than human futures. Oh, there's a thing there. I'm involved in the narrative session on Friday. I think I'm sharing a song there, actually. Great. Uh, And then, uh, or a video, anyway. And then during the session on arts and creativity on Sunday. Uh, So there are some of the highlights. So I saw the ones I really, really want to go to, and I said I'd cheer them, so I get to go to them. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, so look, I'm really impressed with the number of sessions and the calibre of speakers. A lot of academic work, but not just academic work. There's a lot of people from academia who are seeing Nina now as a conference to uh, share their work. It's really growing in status, I think. So very exciting. It is very exciting. And lucky last question, you know, what Nina's doing on a national scale and you'd love it to be global. Do you know if Nina, the New Economy Network of Australia, communicate or network with any international networks? And if so, how does that work? The Wellbeing Economy International Network, we are part of that. So we are a hub of the international, I guess it's a network, really. We're an independent network, obviously, in Australia, but we have those relationships with some of those other organisations. My understanding is, and I've only been on the board for, but the Wellbeing Economy is going to become a really key driver of NENA activities. Because a lot of the activities that we do underneath that banner, if you like, reflect the work that Nina is already doing. And of course, there's the sister organization, AILA, and that's quite an important organization as well for driving or helping to support legal interventions and new legal remedies for issues that we're facing. Well, I'm going to treat myself to another question. On that note of talking about laws, so early this year, there was an independent review on Australia's environment laws released, and it had around 38 recommendations for reforming the EPBC Act, the Environment Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act. 
22 of these recommendations prioritised immediate action to resolve the increasing environmental decline we see here in Australia, which unsurprising because we are a world leader in extinction and deforestation as far as I know. This review included recommendations to implement legally binding national environmental standards, so to protect wildlife, heritage, um, habitats, etc., to end in dangerous exemptions for destructive practices, so that's like logging native forests, to establish an independent watchdog so that we can actually enforce these laws and have some accountability work with First Nations people to properly protect heritage and really recognise their traditional ecological knowledge in all of our conservation decision-making and to strengthen our community rights. A lot of what you spoke about earlier with deliberate democracy, so having in decision-making around conservation and protection. So in a nutshell, this independent review really highlighted our very weak environmental laws our governmental inaction and our need for fundamental reform. With your background in ecological policy, which is just so topical right now with the COP26 underway, do you know where Australia is at in general with our environmental laws since the Environment Minister, Susan Lee, released this review? Uh, no. Yes. <laughs> no, not in detail. Um, I did look into it the early days when it was first out, but I haven't been following the, the, the subsequent developments and legal responses to that. So I don't know where we're up to. And part of the reason for that is I'm, like probably many of us, I'm having to sort of be careful what I throw myself into because I'm a jack of many trades and um, I read a lot about lots of things and and I have to, I just don't have time to get into everything. So um, I don't know where it's at, apart from the fact that I know that the review took place. And, um, and of course, there was the forest, the deforestation agreement at the G20. And I think it's in, in Glasgow as well. Nations now signed up to this pact to, to stop deforestation by 2030. So there's an international move for that. It's just quite a recent development. I mean, it's probably been in the off and in the working behind the scenes for a long time. I think it's a recognition of the dangers of um, ongoing deforestation. Half the world's forests have been destroyed by humans. So we'll see. But it's a long time. It's eight years to go before that comes into play. And then Iran, maybe Russia and Australia, some of the uh, countries who have not signed up. Great company there. Yep, make me proud, ScoMo. <laughs> yeah, but that's why we need new narratives, because we have such a fixation on being the lucky country, which is basically, oh my God, there's a whole bunch of minerals and stuff in, in, in the land we can just dig out and sell. We don't have to do anything with it. We just dig it out, and then we truck it off somewhere else, and people give us truckloads of money, and we go to the beach and have a barbie. What a lucky country we are. I think it's an absolute travesty that Australia has not invested in a sovereign wealth fund of any significance with all this windfall opportunity that it's had, but it hasn't. What does sovereign wealth fund look like? A truckload of money invested. As a permanent investment fund, the interest can be spent on the well-being of Australians. Norway has done this with its fossil fuels. It has the world's biggest wealth fund. Basically, the state owns the oil and the revenue, and all the profits from that go into a fund for all Norwegians. 
and that helps support hospitals and whatever they want to spend it on, basically. But it means they've got this massive truckload of money sitting around the world in portfolios, earning money for them and, and supporting their community. And Australia could have done that, but what we've done is privatised the wealth, given it to a small number of people like Gina Reinhardt. And I think that's one of the pressure points in our system now. We have to find an alternative narrative around the neoliberal experiment that is certainly run its course, I think. But we have to have a new story. When I say prosperous, I'm, I'm very conscious of we're not going to go back to the source of prosperity we have, but well-being, future, that might be more attractive to people than, say, societal collapse, which is the other alternative we're going to have. So the development of a compelling economic narrative will be really critical to our, our future. And it's not going to come in a linear sort of way. It's going to come through shocks, disruptions. And there may be some point some government's going to do some radical readjustment of the distribution mechanism. We did that through COVID, but it's always temporary, but we need to do that in a much longer term way. And it's not inevitable it'll come. The other option is we're just going to keep on going and the, the very wealthy, including the generation of I'm part of, got a lot of investment in houses and so forth and make money from three or four rental houses that they've been told they should have bought when they were 30. Now they've got all this windfall wealth who are going to be reluctant to see it taxed in any serious way or give up those benefits. So it's going to be a bit of a bun fight, I'm afraid. But I still don't think we should give up that fight for a much fairer future because a fairer future is a much safer future for everyone. That's the crux of the issue is that people have personal interests, whether people with power or mainstream people who have voting power, we are reluctant to give up on so many forms of of luxuries. That's right. And so whilst we don't want to judge, we also need to have some accountability, I think. Yeah what we do with our money and time and how fair it is. Absolutely. It comes back to this tricky... Oh, look, that really tricky dance between the structure that got us into this place and not blaming individuals for it and the idea that we also have personal responsibility. I think one of the things that we've not got good at is talking about we have to transform ourselves. A lot of the conversations I have with people around the climate predicament would claim to be environmentalists, have not yet fully embraced the level of transformation it's going to require. And we have to start to do that thinking. We come right back to where we started. The climate challenge is going to bring different types of cells into being, a different type of person, human. So I often ask the question, what sort of person does the future need me to be? And I'm trying to work through that. I hear that in your questions, the way you're talking. You're trying to work through that question. And that's a legitimate question to ask of ourselves and others. If we ask it of ourselves, then we can also ask it of others as well in a, in a compassionate and kind way. But we must be asking these questions. I get frustrated when we're always talking about blaming politicians as all their fault. We've also got to put the mirror on ourselves and say, what does this mean for me and how might my life change? But it's transformative as well. And it's the only way we're going to be able to 
be okay in the middle of a pandemic will be okay in the middle of a series of interlocking climate disasters where the insurance industry collapses or massive heat wave or all these other things that freak us all out entirely and society's on edge. Then we need people who are saying, hey, you know what, this isn't good, but we can still connect with each other. We can still find meaning and value and love and hope goodness in the middle of this. And that's why the well-being economy is so important because it provides an alternative way of being okay without the consumptive model that drives their vision of what is to be okay. I feel like the very nature of the well-being economy is starting the conversations and the conversations feed into people's values and the values create the paradigm shifts and the paradigm shifts create the way we live and the, the way we live creates the world we're in but also the work that we do and the conversations we have so it's providing a platform for us to learn from each other yep. and together work through these things versus having a dictated structure set out for us that we have to adhere to figuring out these things together i think you're right you've articulated that really well Using the agency we've got, we must not be surprised by the fact that a lot of the future is now out of our control. It's going to happen in this sort of unraveling, unpredictable ways. So there's nothing linear about it. So we mustn't hold on to this idea that we can come together and control the future. Because I don't think we can. There'd be certain things we have control over, or more or less control over, certain things we'll have far less control over. But by coming together, we provide a series of narratives which embrace that unraveling and embrace the power of community to actually work through in that moment how we're going to manage. So because the networks are strong, because the relationships are strong, because trust is built, we have a greater chance of being okay or finding a pathway through this. Sort of how I see it anyway. I could be entirely wrong. (laughs) Not for the first time. (laughs) Simon, it's been really nice. I feel like I didn't get to go enough into your brilliant work for music for a warming world, but I just want to reiterate to listeners how cool your music is. I've had a really good listen through some of your songs on your website. It's Beautiful, lovely, folky, heartwarming music with fun instrumentals. It's quite dynamic and cool. So how can people find you and your work in the music field? Music for a Warming World. It'll come up. Our website's there, all the music videos, and adding more videos all the time, including that project Stories for Our New Future, which is what the album is built around, the idea of new narratives. For those interested, the three people that are interested in that sort of thing. (laughs) We're coming to the end of the podcast. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on that we haven't already touched on? A lot of this, I'm trying to articulate a series of complex ideas that have only in recent couple of years that I've started to really think about more deeply. And I'm trying to learn a new language about the future and about what the climate conundrum is. So it's part of my journey too, trying to figure out what it means when everything changes. 
You've been listening to Simon Kerr sharing his inner life experiences of climate change catastrophes through music, a social and political action. Simon is also a NINA, that's the New Economy Network of Australia, board member, committed to building a well-being economy. Keep your ears open for more insightful listening with NINA Podcasts.